Well, good morning. Welcome to Battleground. If you're watching online or here, I invite you to take your Bibles and find the book of James. And if you've got one of those little tassels in your Bible, you may just want to mark that because we're going to be in James for a while. Uh, this is sort of an introduction sermon, so I'd invite you to find James 1.1. As you do, just a reminder, we have a, just a very brief called members meeting right after the service. We're going to deal with one item um, that we presented to you about 30 days ago, and that's it. So it shouldn't be but a few minutes on that. Uh, we want to answer some questions today, and I hope while we're going through the book of James will almost answer itself as we lay the introduction. I want to just find out who is James and, and who is he writing to and look at some of the main themes that we're going to be looking at over the, over the next, um, well, a while. And, uh, and then park the car, so to speak, for a little bit on faith and works. So let me read it. James 1.1. 1, 1. Just keep your seats today. We're just going to look at the first verse. James 1, chapter 1. James begin this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray together. Lord, as we, I hope, I know with me, with excitement, begin this new book of the Bible that many of us have studied at times in the past, and I know, Lord, you have done many things in my life through this book, and I pray that you will Lord, conform us all into your image to, to the greater degrees, from one degree of glory to another as we go through this book. And, uh, Lord, we are reminded in our present context that we have some similarities to those first, the first audience. And so let us seek what we may know and understand over the next few months as we look at this book. Teach us this morning... That despite the uncertainty of the times we live in, your promises and your character and your word stands firm. And so must we. In Jesus' name. Amen. So James. Who is James? James was a fairly common name in that time. Sort of like Jeff or Mike around here, you know. There probably were a lot of them running around. There was at least two that we know of in the Bible, if you remember. One was James, the brother of John. They were the sons of Zebedee. Remember, you were sort of identified by your father. But James, John's brother, if you remember, died about AD 44. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. Herod beheaded him. It is most likely that James, the book, was written in the mid-40s, we'll see a, a famine breaking out in the land at that time around 46, AD 46. So that's what it's thought. So it can't be James, John's brother, because he died before the book was written. Uh, Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to his own hometown. You remember how that ended. Here's the... Here's what the people were saying in Mark 6 and verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, it said, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? 
And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So this is the second James. The one who wrote the book is James, the Lord's brother. But interesting enough, James is an unbeliever. Look at uh, John, John chapter 7 and verse 2. We get to know this James a little bit. It says, Now the feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. So, James that wrote this book was at one time James, the unbelieving brother. This is amazing when you think about it. He grew up with Jesus. He saw his perfect life. What he's saying is you're doing all of these things, but you're doing it in secret. If you really want to be known with the world, if you really are who you say you are, brother, then do it out in the open. Publish this thing. Let's, you know, let's put it on Facebook. Let's start a website. Let's, you know, get a manager. Let's make this thing happen. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, didn't believe. Saw the miracles. Saw people raised from the dead. Saw the leprosy go away. Didn't believe. I ask you, what would have ever changed his mind? Saw him grow up perfect. Saw all his miracles. Still didn't believe. Then he watched him die. Would that have done it? The guy you didn't believe in to start with ended up on a cross. Would that have made you believe? I don't think so. It's important. 33 years? Nah, don't believe him. Here's what we know. This is history, by the way. This is just history. (laughs) James emerges after the death of Christ as what Paul calls a pillar of the church. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. You remember, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he sort of does a little bit of an interview. Here's what he says. And when James and Cephas, as Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So all of a sudden, we see this flourishing new church. And who is one of its leaders? James. James was the one, do you remember, all churches have these little skirmishes and disagreements. You remember the first church was no different. They had a little disagreement. And so they had what they called the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And who stood up to speak to the people? James. Again, I ask you, what would have changed his mind? His life didn't. His miracles didn't. His death surely wouldn't. Well, I want to introduce you this morning. The author of the book is James the Witness. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians 15, we don't have to wonder why, what changed James's mind because we have it here in Scripture for us. And if you don't know, 1 Corinthians 15 has within it here that I'm about to read a creedal statement of the early church. It's one of a couple in the Bible that whether you were literate or not, they had creeds that they would believe, that they would say, that helped them understand the basics of the gospel and spread it to their neighbors. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though although some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, Then He appeared to James. Then to the apostles, and last of all, one of untimely born, he appeared to me. What changed James's mind? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, no matter what you believe about this Jesus, you got to deal with the historical fact that this dude that was related to him didn't believe, and after his death, he grew as a member, a leader of the church of the of the movement that he denied before it. What changed his mind? Only the resurrection of our Lord Jesus would have done that. This is the author of the book. <laughs> the one who's going to speak with authority. The one who calls himself, verse 1, James, slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let that sink in. He could have said, James, the brother of the Lord and slave of God. That would have been good, right? Hey, by the way, related... He's a slave of God and of Christ. That's how he identifies himself. It is sad that most translations use the word servant here because the word is doulos, the word is slave. It reflects authority and ownership willingly. He is identifying himself as a spokesperson for God. I am simply going to tell you what God has told me. He sees himself as the one whose will is bound up in the will of God and of Christ. This brings to us to our first theme we're going to see as we look through James, that of God. James wants us to understand of the oneness of God. You see, he lists both the Father and the Son here, God and of Christ. Also, we're going to learn of God's jealousy. His character produces an action in His people. He is one, we should be one. He is a jealous God, so we should be fidel, have fidelity to Him. We should be faithful to Him and His grace. So, just James, who are the tribes of the dispersion in verse 1? Who is that? In other words, the most important thing you need to understand when you begin a book is who was the original audience? What were they going through? How would they have been reading and hearing this? What was their life experience? Well, these were Jews. Most likely, these were the Jewish Christians that were once associated to the church in Jerusalem. In other words, they would have been there on, in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. They would have heard Peter stand up and preach that sermon, they were amongst the converts 
either then or shortly thereafter. But they had been scattered. They had been, you see the word dispersion? They had been dispersed. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I think you remember this. Before Paul was Paul the church planner and the missionary and evangelist and pastor, he was Saul the persecutor. In Acts 8, 1, it says this, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day, that's speaking of the execution of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Here's the language. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Not only is this the people, James is calling them to remember this dispersion. It's the same language of that that the Assyrians did and then the Babylonians did. It's that same, you've been dispersed. They were in the promised land. God had given them the promise that He promised them, all of it. But they must obey and they didn't. And He scattered them. They were away from their homeland, living in a foreign land, longing to be home. This was the context of James too. His people had been dispersed. Again, away from Jerusalem. Not only that, they were poor. We understand this today, don't we? They were refugees. We've been watching that on the news almost without stop. They were forced to live away from their home country in a foreign context, potentially even with far a different language, but for sure a different culture. They were experienced oppression, poverty. They were treated like many of us treat people who come to this country who can't speak our language and say, why don't you just learn to talk like we talk? Why don't you just eat what we eat and do what we do? That's what they're experiencing. Like the refugees in the Ukraine being dispersed to Poland and France and Hungary and Romania and Germany, all over, away from their homeland, away from their homes. Some of their homes don't even exist anymore. You see, from A.D. 46 to A.D. 70, it wasn't easy to be a Jewish person nor a Christian. They are been, especially the Christians, are, be, are beginning to be persecuted. They are spread everywhere. There was economic volatility. There was social, political. All of this would build to A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was sieged and the temple destroyed. In other words, their situation is not going to get better. This is the second theme, you see. Poverty and wealth. Poverty and wealth. How do we live as a transient people in a foreign land away from our homeland when people aren't treating us right? And so let me be clear, because I know there's some conflict within our own denomination. If you don't know about it, it's okay. Battleground Community Church does not stand nor side with critical race theory nor liberation theology. 
or any other heresy that comes all the time into God's church to try to get us to buy into something to compromise the gospel. But listen to me as clearly as I can tell you this this morning. According to God's word, he has a particular concern for the poor and the downtrodden, and he expects his people to share that concern. Now you can call me woke if you want to, but God cares about the poor and shows it his people. That is the gospel from the beginning of the book, straight into James. His people are poor. The wealthy are oppressing them. There's these rare few people that amass wealth in a foreign land. He's got a word for them too. And here's the reality. Even in a foreign land, even being oppressed, they were worldly. They were worldly. And so the, one of the next themes, the third theme, is the law. We're going to talk about it. Matter of fact, James calls a, calls, uses this term, the perfect law of liberty. What's up with that? Well, we'll look at that when we get to it. Here's what you need to live life in a turbulent time. Wisdom. It's the fourth theme we're going to look at. Wisdom. You see, in a foreign context where you're struggling to pay your bills, what are you tempted to do? Compromise. Compromise. What would you do to put food on your table? If your kids couldn't eat tomorrow, what would you be willing to go out and do? How would you be willing to compromise to, a, and to the pagan culture around you in order to survive? And he says, what you need is wisdom. Listen to this wisdom. James 1.17 says this. This wisdom is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That's the wisdom we need to navigate life in turbulent times. And so for the fifth theme then is how do we live the Christian life? Very common, practical, keep in mind where they are, their context. How do we live life as the oppressed, poor people who are not where we want to be right now? Not in control of our situation. There's no other book in the Bible. Maybe Proverbs. Some people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. It is because it is so practical. James hops around everywhere. That's why I'm talking about themes. Because it's really hard to pin James down. He'll just say something and he'll just move on. But no other book deals with ethical questions of the Christian life. What do we do in this situation and that? And don't miss this. James is concerned about eschatology. Eschatology, what is that? End. The time's at the end. He motivates us with this. James's eschatology, different from John's, it was more right now, is future. Just listen to this one passage, James 5, verse 7. Just know what he's, how he motivates him. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's sort of how he uses it throughout the book. The Lord's coming. It's not here yet. So be faithful. James motivates his people with eschatology that 
the end times should make us hopeful and holy. But remember the problem. The problem is here is their worldliness that he's going to address. He's going to call them in chapter 4 spiritual adulterers. Well, that'll bless your heart, won't it? Spiritual adulterers. Of everything James is concerned of, a matter of, listen, I let David, Pastor David, appreciate him preaching for me for two weeks. I let him pick the text. I did not ask him to preach on anything. I said, you pick what you feel like the Lord wants you to pick. He chose John 17. The overarching umbrella theme of the whole book of James that all these other themes fit into is spiritual faithfulness. In other words, what James is fighting for in these folks' life is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that we may be one. That's the central concern of this letter, is that they and we be spiritually faithful in times of uncertainty. This brings us to the seventh theme that we're going to look at. We're going to look at this one for just a minute. Faith and works. I meet with uh, Chris Parker, pastor at Walnut Grove. We preach through the same text. We, we study the message together and meet at least once and go over it. And at this point is when he remind, wanted, wanted to remind his people. It's a good reminder. Make sure before you start reading James that you're in the faith. If not, you will get confused by this book. This book presumes that you've already worked through Romans and Ephesians, and that you're a believer, that you have been justified by faith. But James is concerned with the set of glasses that you wear, that you live life from. We call this a worldview. I taught a worldview class not long ago. You're, the way you see life, as I'm preaching right now, whether you realize it or not, you have been handed a framework and you are hanging every passage of Scripture I read and everything I say, you're trying to make it hang on a framework you already have. And sometimes your pastor says something intentionally to try to make it not fit. So where, where do I hang that? James wants to make sure that the world that we, worldview that we look at, the glasses that we are interpreting in life are the right set of glasses. How do you answer the big questions of life? And here's what we learned when we went through our worldview, that despite what the world may be telling you, and despite what your children learn when they go off to college, this world is not becoming more secular. This world is becoming more spiritual. That does not mean they're becoming more Christian. Because you may be given this baloney that you buy into when you go to school or you chase this or you chase that. But at the end of the day, something's got to get you out of bed and send you to work that next morning. Something's got to tell you, i got to wash these same clothes I just washed two days ago. Why do I want to do all of this one more day? i got to get up and do it all over again. What is my reason? What are my purpose? How does it inform my priorities? Everybody is looking for the answer to those questions. Even for people who hate the questions, they're still trying to answer them. They desire a spirituality that gives them purpose, that calms their nerves and informs their futures. Everybody is. That person you're scared to engage with the gospel with is worried about the same things you are. 
James says, I wrote this letter so that believers might understand and demonstrate their faith through radical obedience. Introducing this word, it was introduced to me some years ago. It it was introduced to me by this book, Radical. If you've never read this book, it ought to be on it ought to be on your list of books to read. It'll, it'll mess you up. It'll make you mad. If you ever read this book, and when it makes you mad, you have to ask yourself, why am I mad? That's when it'll do this work to you. A radical faith, you see, must be a practical faith. That's why this book is so, James is so practical. But what do I mean by a radical faith? Well, turn with me to Luke. Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is radical. This is, by the way, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet when he said that. When people thought of the cross, they didn't have pleasant feelings. They didn't wear it on their t-shirts and get it tattooed on their bodies. This meant shame, humiliation, death, torture, any bad word that you could imagine. That's what cross meant. And that's what Jesus said. You want to follow me? That's what it means. And you've got to be willing to lose it all to follow me because that's where I'm going. A couple of quotes from Platt's book on radical says this. He identifies the problem within the church. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. He goes on to say, Radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort. It's not health. It's not wealth and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ. And He is more than enough. Radical obedience embraces a life that is faithfully devoted to Christ. Listen, I'm going to get on this in a minute. It is intensely theological. Because you must be devoted, you got to be devoted to something, and everybody is. It's faithfully devoted to God in Christ. His purpose, His plans, whatever it means, whatever it looks like, I'm, I'm committed to it. It is then to be single-mindedly obedient, despite what it costs. Despite what it does to your W-2. Radical faith must embrace this. It must embrace a devotion and a single-minded, obedient faith, but it also must reject things. And you know this because you're still here. We've intentionally chose a vision that does not promote a consumer-driven church. Don't have all the bells and whistles. If we had somebody give us $2 million tomorrow, we would not spend it on bells and whistles when people are going to hell. We don't do it because the Bible doesn't 
tell us to live life this way as a Christian. That's not what Luke means by radical obedience. It's not consumer-driven. It is not self-centered nor comfortable. It wasn't for them, and it's not for us. But you see, a radical faith, what James is concerned about, it must work. And yes, we're going to get to a radical faith drives the nail or washes the dishes, yet yeah, works. Well, what I mean is it must work. It must make sense. First of all, it must inform you and it must instruct you. And to do that, it has to deal with these practical issues of life that you and everybody around you are struggling with and wondering about or dealing with on a daily basis. So listen to what James is going to lead us to deal with. These are practical issues. See if they're not. Trials, it's next week. Poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice issues. Not going to bring that up. James is. Our mouths, <laughs> worldliness, pride. How should we make plans? How should we pray? What do we do when we're sick? Right? Practical stuff. Right? Faith must deal with these. It must inform us of them. It must instruct us. And then, listen, it should motivate us then to do something. A faith that works, works. You've got to do something. A radical faith doesn't deal with hypotheticals. It doesn't sit there all day long as many, as many pastors do and draw on a whiteboard and expect something to happen. It's got to do something. A radical faith is going to lead you to lead a Bible study in your workplace or in your neighborhood. It's going to lead you to help an addict, to serve in homeless shelters, to go to retirement homes and hospice care. It's going to lead you to do things like that. It's going to lead us to train people how to do practical things. You know how to do something that someone else in the world don't know how to do. Train them how to do it. Yes, that's a gospel issue. What do you have that you did not receive? The very job that earns you income is the very means that He gives you to disciple other people. Train other people. Teach people how to read so that they may enjoy the gospel. We're thinking about that as we go to Honduras and you ask the question, how many people coming through the, the clinic? I saw, I saw Samson ask them, can they, can they write? Can they read? If not, you had to do it for them. I'm thinking about that as I heard that. How we teach them the gospel just changed, you see. Would I be willing to teach people to read? Would I be willing to learn Spanish just so I could share the gospel with somebody in their tongue? That's what radical faith does. It leads medical teams to places where you might get sick. It labors for years with people who may walk away just so that they can know Christ. That's what radical faith does. It does not sit around and talk about it. It does it. And it does it because of its faith. A radical faith must speak to your life experience. What you're going through. Don't work if it don't, you see. Just trust God. What does that mean? Nobody wants to deal with the elephant in the room. 
<laughs> when it's your elephant, you want somebody to deal with it. it he's going to deal with my trials, mine, yours. Jesus is going to teach you. James is going to teach us that trials aren't bad. I know we don't want to hear that. But we all know that the bad things in our life has caused us to grow up, sometimes physically, sometimes spiritually. Therefore, they're not bad. They're, but therefore, they're purposeful. My temptations, mine, is rooted in my selfish desires. Oh, I love this. My poverty does not limit my usefulness. And my wealth does not give me a leg up. More that's good, isn't it? You know what he actually says? That if I'm wealthy, which means if I'm an American, I need to be aware that that creates a barrier because it produces selfishness and autonomy that I feel like I don't need God. It deals with that. It tells me that my mouth is a fruit problem and my pride is a root problem. It teaches me that my temperament sometimes stink and my prejudice impacts my love for other people. A radical faith declares us that my spouse, my children, and my job is not the problem. I am. It's my problem. Because every day I never love my Jesus as much as He loves me. And every day when I go to bed, I wake up in the morning to my Jesus kissing me on the cheek with new mercies every day. And if He does that, how must I love those who are hard to love? That's a radical. That's faith. We receive this radical gospel that must produce radical obedience. This is personal. Do you feel it? It's personal. A radical faith is a personal faith. It's going to step on your toes. He steps on them because He loves you. Notice this. Just picked one. You could have picked, I could have picked almost anywhere. I just want you to see the personal nature of James. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. And I love the way he introduces this. He does this a lot. James has the authority to speak very directly and very candidly, and he will. But notice how he couches this. Know this, verse 19, chapter 1. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Do you see it? This is personal. My anger, my filthiness, I must receive the implanted word for it is my soul that is at stake. James' message is going to demand a personal response from every one of us. If you look on down at verse 26, in James 1 he says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now I know many of us stumble over the word religion. We'll talk about that again. It's just replace it with your devotion to God. He's sitting there going, Stephen, your devotion of God is demonstrated by your mouth. <laughs> Not the doctrine you write on a piece of paper, but on what you say, how you, how you speak to other people. But listen, a personal faith is not a private faith. 
It's not what that means. This is what we've been given by the world. We are being pressured into this, whether you realize it or not. Every TV program you watch, every commercial we watch, and when you send your kids to college, listen to what's going to happen. You're going to pay $100,000 for them to destroy the framework you've spent their whole children's life to build up. And then they're going to rebuild another framework, and when you see them in four years, about 70% of them will be hanging everything you say on a different framework. You better feel that pressure, parents. You got today. Worldview matters. You're being pressured into a privatized faith. That's not what he means. Private means inward and subjective. Well, that's okay for you. They, you will be pressured to say your faith is just a feeling. It is simply a subjective feeling that is disconnected to truth and facts. And it's okay if you feel that way. Just keep it to yourself. My subjected opinion on how I choose to live doesn't affect Samson, how Samson chooses to live or Jeff chooses to live. It's just your private faith, your subjective feeling. That's why sexuality is, I like vanilla and you like chocolate. It's all good. Tomorrow, I might like chocolate. That's okay too. Because it's just what you think. Just keep it to yourself. You see, when we buy in that our faith is a private faith, we disconnect our faith from truth. So please, don't be one of these people because your pastor bites his tongue off when you say it. Theology don't matter. Doctrine not really important. Have we forgotten what faith is? Faith is belief. To trust in something. To trust in what? To believe in what? It is foundationally theological. Everything you do is an expression of what you believe about God, His character, and His actions in this world. Faith informs politics. It does. It informs your work ethic. It informs how you love who you love and why you love the people that you love. It infects your priorities, your money. Your faith impacts how you live this one precious brief life that you have. Faith motivates us to attempt great things for God. That unless the Spirit of God does them, we will fail. And yet we step out. If there's one guy that I really can't get enough reading, it's a George Mueller. I would, I would recommend, he's got an autobiography that'll bless your heart to read. Read about his life. I, just, I took this one to Honduras with me. George Mueller, if you don't know him, started an orphanage over in, in England and took care of thousands beyond his lifetime of orphans in an age where that wasn't done. When someone asked him, by the way, he determined to start all these orphanages with no debt, to never ask anybody for anything. Why would you do something like that, George? Listen to what he said. 
I did this to show before the whole world and the whole church of Christ that even in these last evil days, the living God is ready to prove Himself as the living God by being ever willing to help, relieve, comfort, and answer the prayers of those who trust Him. So that we need not go away from Him to our fellow men or the ways of the world, seeing that He is both able and willing to supply us with all that we can need in His service. And with a person who believes that, they're hard to stop. Because that's the man that God uses. Not the one with the greatest degrees or the most money. It is simply a man who says, I'm going to trust my Lord. It is that. This is radical faith. It produces an unstoppable strength in one's life that impacts the world in which they live. Or as God spoke to the prophet Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how we will change Kings Mountain in this world. You see... This morning, everybody has faith. The atheist, the agnostic, if you're eight today, you have faith. No matter what you believe, no matter where you are, no matter what life looks like in your life, you have faith. The question is, how is it working? Is it working? You may say, oh, Stephen, I, I prayed that prayer when I was six. I'm good question is not what you did at six. I'm asking you, is your faith working today? What is it producing today? We are all devoted to something. And we're devoted to that which gives us meaning and purpose and hope. But at the beginning of James, are we willing to take an honest look into the mirror and ask ourselves the question, is our faith working? been reading a lot in the New Living Translation when I'm studying. I think it's, it's helpful. I found myself in Habakkuk chapter 1. God's people are suffering. They've been dispersed. I love this. You see, a radical faith is not a perfect faith, but it is an honest one. It is an honest one. Listen to the honest faith of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1, verse 12. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, You are eternal. Surely You do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, You have seen these Babylonians, You have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But You are pure, and You cannot stand the sight of evil. Will You wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Might we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them, saying, these nets are the gods who have made us rich, they will claim. Verse 17, will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest? And he, then he says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand 
at my guard post. Then I will wait to see what the Lord says, how he will answer my complaint. Do you see his honesty and his faith? You don't have to have one or the other. We have both. That's what he had. Listen to the Lord. The Lord answered him. The Lord said to me, verse 2, Write my answer plainly on tablets so that the runner can, can carry the correct message to others. Their vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. I hope you get this this morning. To wait on the Lord does not mean to sit around and do nothing. Faith waits patiently through active faithfulness. That's what James wants to teach us. The more uncertain your life is, the more important it is to be like Christ in your life. There are, at the end of the day, two responses to turbulent times. The times that we are in. Let's listen to Philippians 3. The encouragement today as we close is this. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 18. One response. For many of whom I have told you and now... Even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. That's one response. Here's the other. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like Christ's glorious body, by the power that enables even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm with us in the Lord, my beloved. And so, brothers and sisters, James desires to inform us, to instruct us, to motivate us, and to encourage us to stand firm, especially in times of uncertainty. And so now, brothers and sisters, let us respond in worship by singing, by giving, by coming to the tables to remember our Lord and to receive His grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are excited as we enter into this book and that you have given to us to speak to the, the very practical nooks and crannies in our life. To see all of those places conform to the image of your Son. We thank you that you've given us a book that is so clear and so easy to understand, but yet so practical and so convicting. And so, Lord, we say amen today. We are your people your servants, your slaves who long to be like you. We do not want anything to separate us from the love of Christ that is in, that is in your Son. And so, Lord, may there be no sin that's secret. May there be something that is just 
ignorant that we don't know of, Lord, reveal it to us so that we may be repent and enjoy you. That's what we desire to now as we stand to lift our voices. To be reminded that you are all we have. And every morning we wake up. Oh, that your people might hear you. That they might receive that kiss on the cheek that reminds them that they are yours. That they are precious. That they are chosen. That they are created for a purpose. To worship you. To enjoy you. Now and forever. Oh God, that you would speak kind words over your people this morning. To fill us with your spirit. We long to be useful to the day we go home. And so, Lord, now that we would just enjoy you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.